You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmeswaran from Washington, D.C. How's it going, Prashant? We're uh, really getting to the uh, end of 2018 here. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I guess the best way to start today's episode, um, when we'll be offering a few predictions on flashpoints in Asia to come in 2019, uh, would be to begin with a major uh, personnel change announcement here in the United States in the Trump administration. Um, so Jim Mattis um, is resigning, contrary to what President Trump has tweeted, saying that he will be retiring. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we saw Mattis's remarkable resignation letter um, that didn't spend a lot of time thanking Trump for the opportunity to serve in his administration, but rather uh, read like something that He'd probably worked on for a while that sort of outlined the well-known ideological differences between the two of them when it comes to their view of America's role in the world, the nature in which the United States should treat its allies, and a variety of other issues. So Mattis has said that his tenure will end on February 28th, 2019. Um, But I'm a little bit skeptical if he actually sticks through until that date, given that that's a long time from now, and it appears as if you know, the public perception around his resignation letter is starting to get to Trump a little bit. He did tweet today that he's tough on Russia and China, which Matt has accused him of not being. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think this is a pretty, uh, pretty important development. I think a lot of, um, you know, over, I think both of our trips to Asia over the past two years, um, at least on my trips, you know, people repeatedly, regardless of where I am, would point to Mattis as sort of a source of comfort that there was a bit of normalcy left in the U.S. approach to Asia, and certainly if Mattis did anything right, he allowed these sort of institutionalized interactions that carried over from the Obama administration to mostly keep running. He he maintained the massive bureaucracy of the U.S. Department of Defense um, as, as well as anyone could. And now if he's going to be replaced with somebody potentially with less experience, potentially more ideologically similar to Trump, I think a big concern in the region is that um, all of those assurances can no longer be taken for granted. Um, but yeah, what's your uh, what's your view here on Mattis's departure? How do you think this is going to be received in the region? It's a pretty troubling development. I think it's it's one with which, um, as you correctly noted, I mean, in, in our trips to the region, um, it, it's really difficult to find uh, individuals who who haven't said to some degree either made references to Mattis as a stabilizing force within the administration, and then also expressing doubts and you know directly asking questions about. You know, what do you think the likelihood of Mattis staying through 2019 might be? Um, so the fact that this has occurred is, is a troubling development. Um, Mattis played a, a key role in terms of, I think, helping stabilize the administration, but also holding back Trump on some of his instincts on a lot of these decisions. Some of them not really to do with Asia, some of them in the Middle East. Um, and I think the fear now is that, um, you know, the Trump administration is beginning to look more like Trump. Uh, and less like the sort of, you know, the, the the sort of sense of normalcy and bipartisanship that some individuals had hoped for um, in the administration in the early stages. Uh, that's, you know, going off a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, what the implications are for, for foreign policy, you know, is, is, is pretty grave. I mean, I think you noted um, in his letter, Mattis referred to some of the issues that he had with President Trump in, in terms of alliances, partnerships, um, the the threat from Russia and China, um, but really this is I mean it really crystallizes the divisions between uh, Mattis, who has a very traditionalist line on foreign policy, you know, the believe in the post World War II U.S. order, 
uh, and a president who really challenges a lot of those tenets um, of, of that order. So, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty troubling way to, to end uh, 2018 and look ahead to 2019. I, I share your skepticism a little bit about whether he'll stick around till February. Um, the other reason why it could be difficult is because, you know, what does he do about these decisions that he fundamentally degree, uh, disagrees with President Trump about, right? So if you're talking about uh, troop withdrawals, uh, uh, the decreasing of the U.S. presence in Syria, um, I'm not sure if he'd want to stick around or President Trump would want him to stick around um, if those divergences become even clearer in the months that follow. Yeah. So one one final comment on Mattis, and then we can move on to our planned discussion for today. Um, you know the the interesting thing I think about Mattis's resignation letter too. You know if I'm if I'm reading this in an allied or partnered capital in Asia, and I've been putting a lot of stock in strategy documents to come out of the Trump administration, like the National Security Strategy, the National Defense Strategy document, even the Nuclear Posture Review. To some extent, even a lot of what DoD officials have been saying about free and open Indo Pacific. Mattis's, you know, Mattis's resignation, like you said, is the clearest indicator that Trump's foreign and defense policy in Asia is going to start to look a lot more like the things he says and tweets about. And that's mm-hmm. sort of been everybody's nightmare. And the moment that happens, all of those strategy documents really, I think, start to lose their meaning, right? Um, I mean, yes. I mean, we don't know what the, the proximal cause of Mattis's departure is, right? I think the Syria withdrawal, the announcement of troop productions in Afghanistan had something to do with it. Um, but broadly, you know, I've seen some people making the argument that, well, you know, these instincts that Trump is acting on by reducing troops in the Middle East actually serve the objectives outlined in the national security strategy to pivot, you know, to use the old word, to pivot away from the Middle East towards great power confrontation with Russia and China. You have to start reducing troops in places like Afghanistan and Syria. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I, I find that a little bit unconvincing just given the broad um, the things that we know about Trump's overall worldview. Um but I think we'll leave it there. I think this is really, you know, a pretty dramatic way to end 2018. It's sort of where, you know, we're kind of concluding part one of the Trump presidency in many ways. And part two looks like it's going to be a lot bumpier, um, especially given everything else that's happening in the region that we can uh, now segue to talking about a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think a good place to maybe start would be the South China Sea. Um, that's been a favorite flashpoint of ours, obviously the diplomat. Uh, I think the very first episode of this podcast, uh, almost five years ago was about the South China Sea and, uh, we've come a long way since then. Um, so we've been talking on and off about the South China Sea and really, you know, the Trump administration has changed things in a way by sort of maintaining the same rhetorical support for principles like freedom of navigation and the peaceful resolution of disputes in the area, but also sort of increasing the tempo of freedom of navigation operations. We had a dramatic near collision incident uh, in October in the South China Sea that sort of came alongside a broader decline in U.S.-China relations. But, you know, the bigger picture is that the problem in the South China Sea of a Chinese sort of fait accompli and a lack of implementation of the 2016 International Tribunal's ruling both remain really present. Um, so looking forward to 2019, Prashant, um, what, what what do we have to look forward to in the South China Sea? And maybe you can tell us a bit about the Southeast Asian um, view on this as well, given um, the transition of ASEAN chairmanship from Singapore to Thailand. If we were to characterize it uh, broadly, I, I think 2019, um, as with 2018, uh, actually, I think continues to be a, a sort of a year of concern to look at for the South China Sea, because essentially, as you noted, we've seen the South China Sea increasingly framed um, in terms of this growing uh, sort of tensions between the United States and China. 
And we've also seen a number of other troubling developments, right? So the, the, the role of ASEAN as an institution in trying to help at least manage some of these tensions, that has been put into doubt. Um, the fact that the Chinese have been continuing militarization while also uh, proceeding at least with talks on a potential code of conduct, which is their sort of favorite strategy, sort of doing two things at one time. That strategy seems to at least, you know, been gaining more traction in terms of Southeast Asia because I think there's interest among a number of countries to reduce the tensions there and focus on more of the economic benefits from engaging with China. And then I think the final piece of that is you're seeing individual countries take their own actions um, as if to say, you know, um, you know, now that we have the, the growing tensions about you in the United States and China and doubts about the role of ASEAN, it's almost, you know, to a certain degree, every country for itself. Um, and so having uh, Malaysian Prime Minister uh, Mahathir Mohamad comment about the fact that, you know, we don't want any warships in the South China Sea, but also commenting subsequently that Malaysia is going to do what it needs to do to strengthen its own capabilities in the South China Sea. We're seeing Indonesia now uh, step up its military installations in the South China Sea to build up its own capabilities. Um, we're going to see similar things from the Philippines as well uh, into next year. So I really think, I mean, all these uh, points, you know, they, they direct us towards a scenario in the South China Sea where um, China's presence is getting uh, more significant. Uh, the doubts about the U.S. presence and how much the U.S. cares about the South China Sea in relation to all these threats, that still remains in the region. And I think a number of these countries are taking their own actions uh, in terms of what they want to do for their own interests. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think that's right. And, you know, I mean, broadly, I don't know if you'd agree with this or not. Um, looking at the Trump administration's approach to confrontation with China since the <laughs> start of the trade war in earnest this July, um, it really seems like the South China Sea has sort of fallen lower on the agenda um, than it used mm -hmm. to be. Uh, you know, issues like trade, cyber, intellectual property, um, broader issues related to the trade war have really kind of come to the top. Um, even even an issue like North Korea and Chinese enforcement of sanctions has been higher on this administration's agenda. I mean, yes, we have heard um, support for the principles that drive U.S. engagement in the South China Sea, but really the issue itself doesn't seem to be at the top of U.S. engagement with China in any way. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, that when you go through U.S.-China relations and you think about competition, there's this whole laundry list of issues that you have between the two countries. And I think it's fair to say that relative to all these other issues that we're talking about, whether it's on trade, um, North Korea, South China Sea really ranks quite low in the balance. But I, I guess that's a good segue for us to move into uh, North Korea, which is another thing that we've talked about quite frequently on the on the podcast. Um, we, we've seen in 2018 a, a number of developments that have increased the hype around uh, North Korea and some of the, uh, the, the sort of U.S.-North Korea dynamics that we've seen over the past year. And we have moved broadly from where we were in 2017 to a period of, you know, confrontation and, and, you know, a real worry about the risk of war to at least a period where the United States and North Korea have been engaging. We, we saw a historic summit. Um, but really, the uh, I guess the sense is that we, we haven't really so far at least seen a move towards denuclearization in any meaningful sense of the word. So I guess big question for 2019, where do you see this moving uh, in terms of the United States and North Korea, but just a North Korea situation in general, because there are other actors as well, like South Korea, for example. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I think 2019 is when the rubber hits the road on 
North Korea demanding its concessions. We've already been seeing some of that since about September, October. Really, I think it began with the North Korean foreign minister speech here in New York at the General Assembly, uh, making the claim that, you know, North Korea had in good faith announced a secession to nuclear testing and it deserved um, sanctions relief as a result of that. Um, but, you know, I mean, quickly to take stock of everything that we've seen this year, um, and I'll just plug my upcoming uh, longer article on this in the Diplomats magazine. They'll be out uh, in early January, um, where I kind of take stock of the concessions that occurred this year. Um, you're absolutely right, Prashant. I mean, there is no um, agreement, first of all, between the United States and North Korea on denuclearization per se. There is a high-level agreement that came out of the June 12th summit in Singapore, but that does not commit North Korea to any specific course of action on denuclearization. Uh, that commits North Korea and the United States to sort of try to work towards goals that they've, you know, they first agreed to in uh, 1993, 1994, uh, way back in the era of the agreed framework, normalizing relationship between them, working towards a new era of uh, USDPRK relations, Working towards denuclearization, which the North Koreans actually just this week clarified, does not mean what the Trump administration has been uh, sort of emphasizing, the denuclearization of North Korea. They clarified in a remarkable commentary that, you know, this is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. The distinction is important. It doesn't mean North Korea's unilateral nuclear abandonment. It means that the United States will have to come to the table with things that it's willing to give up. And the North Koreans effectively see... United States total disarmament as a component of total denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. So these issues, I think, are on the table uh, if we do go into this second summit that's anticipated mm -hmm. between Trump and Kim early next year. Um, there is no working group process to discuss the, uh, the intricacies of denuclearization, right? So the U.S. appointed a special representative, Steve Began, in late August. And as far as I'm aware, the only time he's met any North Koreans was when, was when he traveled with Mike Pompeo to Pyongyang in October. Apart from that, Began has been shuttling around to Tokyo and Seoul and meeting with, you know, he's primarily been in an, in an alliance management role. He hasn't really had a, an opportunity to talk to a North Korean counterpart, and the North Koreans haven't yet actually even officially named a counterpart for that working group process. So things don't look great on the denuclearization front. I think going into 2019, you know, there is a real risk of this, um, of this process sort of falling apart because the United States falls into its old trap of sort of maintaining the binary black or white total denuclearization for sanctions relief approach without considering any sort of stopgap measures to induce North Korea into minor concessions and build trust. At the same time, the inter-Korean process, I think, is showing a lot of progress this year. I think there was just a report that came out this week that showed that since the opening of the inter-Korean liaison office in Kaesong across the demilitarized zone, uh, representatives of the two Koreas have met over 280 times in just about 100 days. So that shows you just how much more is happening on the inter-Korean front than on the U.S.-North Korea front. Um, so the problem, though, for Moon Jae-in is that um, if the U.S.-North Korea process does collapse, it's highly likely that the inter-Korean process goes with it. And that's a bit of a nightmare for him. He's coming up on the midway point of his single presidential term. He's term delimited. He cannot serve a second term. And he's sort of got a long list of things that he li he'd like to achieve by the end of his term, including uh, an end of war declaration and possibly a peace treaty, something that he wanted to accomplish by the end of this year, but which wasn't obviously possible. Um, Kim Jong-un is also expected to travel to Seoul for a remarkable summit, if that happens, it would be the fourth summit between him and Moon. Uh, for Kim Jong-un also, there is the issue of, 
you know, um, a lot of people have been asking me that, you know, do I think Kim Jong-un is going to start testing missiles again? Uh, I don't think so, because I think, you know, as, as long as this process goes on and the United States keeps demanding total capitulation for sanctions relief, North Korea ends up looking like the reasonable party. And the minute they start testing weapons again, all of that goodwill and all of that reputation that Kim has sort of won for himself this year uh, really goes down the drain. I think it would have consequences for him with China and Russia. Remember, he's still waiting for Xi Jinping to travel to Pyongyang for a summit there and also for a meeting with Vladimir Putin. So those are also to be expected in 2019. Um, mm -hmm. So immediately, I don't think there's a risk of this process collapsing and us heading back to the, you know, the dangerous days of 2017. But 2019 is really where, you know, the, the pressure starts to hit in that I think it's going to be much more difficult for Trump to just pretend like everything's solved with North Korea, especially because the North Koreans aren't going to let him forget. And I think the best signal for this is going to be Kim Jong-un's um, New Year's Day address, which is just a few, you know, a few days away from this recording, where he will lay out again his his objectives for his country for the year. But also, I, I'm fully expecting him to have a message for Trump um, and um, really kind of the set of conditions that will have to be met for the second summit to actually happen. Mm hmm. That's a that's a good overview. Uh, so moving to the the other, I guess, major flashpoint in, in, in South Asia. Uh, we've seen and we've talked about a, a number of uh, facets of the India-Pakistan relationship, and, and 2019 is a place where, I mean, we'll see no shortage of of change in in that relationship. Uh, India, as we talked about in in the previous episode, on elections, uh, it's going to have a a set of consequential elections, parliamentary uh, elections. Um, and you're also going to see um, Imran Khan and his, you know, domestic and foreign policy uh, framework take shape, and it's all going to be taking place uh, in terms of what happens in India and Pakistan within a framework where the Trump administration and the United States uh, seems to be, at least for now, rethinking uh, its military presence and its approach really to the Middle East, whether it's uh, Syria, Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan and so on and so forth. How do you see the India-Pakistan relationship evolving within that sort of broader context, as well as the domestic political developments in both countries? Yeah, I mean, you know, not to fall into the pit of the present, but right now there's kind of a sense of optimism about the India-Pakistan relationship, given the recent uh, development over the Kartarpur corridor, where Pakistan is uh, going to allow Indian uh, Sikh pilgrims uh, access to a, uh, a religious site on its side of the border. Sort of a, you know, it's a, it's an important gesture of goodwill. It comes uh, shortly after the 10th anniversary of the um, November 26th um, terror attacks in Mumbai in 2008, uh, which was obviously uh, um, the uh, you know the biggest low point between the two countries uh, since the crisis of 2001-2002 uh, and possibly even Cargill. Uh, in 1999. Um, so the relationship right now um, is in an interesting place. Um, certainly there are pressure points, right? Um, the Indian Army continues to really uh, lay down a heavy-handed approach to retaining control of Kashmir. The issue with the militancy there goes on, and uh, the Indians continue to accuse the Pakistanis of um, fomenting that violence across the border, especially the Pakistani military. Um, I think in the first half of 2019, um, we're likely to see the, the status quo right now sort of persist. Really, since the September 2016 uh, attacks at Uri, uh, the relationship between the two countries has mostly 
um, you know, it, it did take a nosedive in, um, in late 2016 and 2017. And there was also the, um, the major bilateral crisis over uh, Kulbushan Jadav, the mm-hmm. uh, suspected uh, Indian spy that was apprehended and sentenced to death in Pakistan that India denied was um, any kind of uh, state agent. They just alleged that he was a retired naval officer who'd been uh, doing business in Iran when he was kidnapped. Um, so apart from those issues, I mean, right now things are things are likely to head on a smooth trajectory until the elections happen, uh, especially because if the Pakistani military does engage in any kind of major adventurism right before an Indian election, it's sort of a gift to the hardline um, BJP, which is more likely to feed back in ways that might not be so beneficial to Pakistani interests, even though the military does have an interest in sort of keeping things with India a little bit uh, heated up at all times. Um, after the election, though, and really here, you know, uh, listeners can listen to the previous podcast where we talked a bit about what might happen at the Indian elections. But really, depending on the outcome of that election, I think we're likely to see um, either a, you know, a new Indian prime minister, which I think is unlikely, sort of make a bold opening towards Pakistan, or Modi entering a second term and um, trying to see you know, I mean, if there's anything we know about Modi's neighborhood policy is that it's really a neighborhood minus Pakistan policy. It's really India sort of sidelining Pakistan, at, the, at least at the level of the prime minister and allowing kind of the institutional exchanges to take take place, but really focusing its efforts elsewhere in the neighborhood. So if that happens, we might end up seeing the Pakistanis potentially take advantage of that to um, to pursue kind of narrow objectives in places like Kashmir. But right now, um, I don't think there's any major reason to expect the uh, this particular flashpoint to really uh, blow up in 2019. Um, so, I mean, speaking of, you know, I think this is maybe a good place to talk a bit about Afghanistan, mm-hmm. um, where I guess as Mattis was resigning, we had reports that the United States was going to begin a drawdown there in Afghanistan after a surge in August. So the Obama administration left office with 8,400 troops, and the Trump administration announced that it was basically going to play whack-a-mole with militants, uh, ISIS and Taliban alike, last year. So it surged troops without a real kind of strategic end state in mind, and the conflict in Afghanistan has really been playing out. We had a major Taliban offensive on Ghazni, and uh, we now are looking forward to uh, an important year of transition in Afghanistan with this latest presidential election and the Taliban sort of controlling more uh, districts than they have since any time since the U.S. invasion in 2001. Um, so that does seem like broadly um, a place where things are likely to get worse than they were in uh, in 2018, sadly. I mean, if the United States does continue with withdrawal, the Afghan National Army and police forces, I think, are, are stretched far too thin at this point. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, do you have anything to add on the Afghanistan front? No, I mean, I, I think you characterized it well. I mean, this is now, you know, America's longest war, essentially. Um, and and we, we, we've been talking about this through multiple administrations. And I think towards the end of the Obama administration and the beginning of the Trump administration, we sort of had this conversation and debate in, in, in Washington about, you know, the extent to which, um, you know, the troop presence there, what objectives is it going to accomplish, what the nature of the troop presence there is for. Um, but essentially, the, the, the broader question, I think that's really interesting for 2019 and, and even beyond is uh, the United States, you know, the past decades has been, you know, sort of toying with and moving between this ex- these extremes of, you know, the Middle East is of declining strategic importance to the United States relative to Asia, as, as we've talked about, the so-called pivot. Um, and so the United States needs to get out of the Middle East um, as soon as possible. But at the same time, it's very difficult to disengage from the Middle East, um, either because a, a president doesn't want to be seen as weak 
or because there's a fear that if the United States disengages from uh, the Middle East, um, the, the sort of old uh, sort of catchphrase about, you know, the United States may not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East is always interested in the United States in the sense that if there's a withdrawal and the United States uh, is negligent in this area of the world, often it tends to come back to bite the United States, either, you know, an attack on the homeland, you know, God forbid, something like we saw like September 11, or the regional situation just becomes so intense and tough to deal with that the United States has to get back in the game again. And I wonder if, you know, 2019 with the Trump administration's announced uh, moves in Syria and Afghanistan, um, whether this will, you know, be a significant year in terms of how the United States shapes that Middle East presence. And the other thing we haven't talked about um, is Iran, right? Um, you know, the Trump administration's strikingly different approach towards Iran and whether the Iranians could, um, and, and they've been quite balanced and restrained, relatively speaking, up to this point, um, whether they think it's still in their interest to kind of uh, bide for time and see the end of the Trump administration or whether the Iranians uh, take a more activist approach to uh, these conflicts and issues in the region as well. Yeah, I know I know that Iran is not really uh, part of the... Uh part of what we consider Asia at the diplomat, I guess. But, uh, I mean, we do talk about it in the context of domestic issues. But, you know, one of the issues with Mattis's resignation that's sort of been lingering is this um, the sense that you get if you read statements coming out of the State Department um, that sort of are clamoring for what appears to be a conflict with Iran. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I do have concerns about that. I mean, given what we know about both, I guess, Trump's predilections. I mean, Trump has claimed to be not in favor of the United States going everywhere and starting new wars. Um, and given what we know about the national security strategy that emphasizes basically containment of Iran while focusing on great power competition, that shouldn't be a concern. But, um, you know, I think um, people like the Secretary of State, uh, certainly John Bolton, um, do have sort of deep-seated grievances about Iran. And there's certainly a lot of uh, animosity towards the Iranian regime of this administration. So, one of the concerns is that the drawdowns in Afghanistan and Syria are really going to be repurposed um, towards Iran. Um, and I, I hope I'm wrong about that. I mean, we do have State Department statements, you know, saying that we are accumulating the risk of escalation against Iran. I mean, it's really it's really reminiscent of some of the language in kind of late 2002 in the lead up to the Iraq war, um, especially as the United States, you know, has continued to pretend that the uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the 2015 Iran deal, isn't working uh, when, in fact, the International Atomic Energy Agency continues to certify that Iran remains in compliance and is not currently pursuing any kind of nuclear weapons capability. But a good way to get them to do that, I think, would be to uh, attack them and in spite of the fact that they had come to the table and decided to do diplomacy with the United States. Um, so I think that's certainly a big flashpoint. And if, you know, if, God forbid, that does happen, it will have important um, reverberations uh, across Asia, um, mm -hmm. certainly um, in in the near neighborhood in Pakistan and Central Asia, um, but also um, I think with China um, as well. So yeah, I think I think that's about it for the overview. Do we do we miss anything? No, I, th I think you know as we've stressed before in previous podcasts. I mean, e when we cover these flashpoints, it's it's also important to keep in mind that there are these other slow burning challenges that. Um, it's tough to cover uh, when we talk about these flashpoints, whether it's, you know, for example, migration flows and population displacement, right? Like we, we've, as we've talked about with the Rohingya episode, we're now dealing with the population displacement that's greater than, you know, any time since world, the end of World War II. Um, and that's huge. It's not a flashpoint per se, but it's something which puts stresses on a lot of different uh, parts of the world and results in 
a lot of these things that we see, whether it's, you know, the election of Trump, Brexit, you know, so on and so forth. So there are these other challenges along with, you know, surprises like a, you know, major cyber attack somewhere that we're, we're not thinking about um, that, that we can't obviously cover here. But, you know, there are the things that we, we do know about that we can try to make sense of here. Yeah, well, I guess the bottom line is that there'll be plenty of things for us to talk about next year, um, regardless of what happens in the region. Um, But with that said, uh, Prashant, thanks for joining me. Yeah, good to be with you. Yeah, and uh, happy holidays to you and uh, and to all of our listeners who've uh, long supported the podcast and listened to us. And uh, if you've uh, liked what you've heard on the podcast, but you haven't yet subscribed, uh, make sure you do that. You can do that on either Google Play if you're on Android or uh, iTunes if you're on iOS or a variety of other providers if you use uh, some other platform. And if you've been a subscriber for a while, but you haven't yet left us a review, uh, please go ahead and do that. It really helps get the word out about the show. And if you have suggestions for uh, future uh, episodes, uh, do feel free to reach out to either of us with those. We'd be happy to take it into consideration and uh, include it in our future coverage. So uh, thanks a lot for listening. And uh, we'll be back soon with more, if not in 2018, then definitely in early 2019.